Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores and with me today I have Tim Fanner. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, I say. I'm in, I'm in your establishment. That's uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? So basically I'm a, I was a kid, still I'm a kid at heart, <laughs> who just likes messing around with cars and uh, my first car was an Austin Healy Sprite, same as an MG Midget. And in having that car, I loved it, restored it. Um, my dad had a garage, and so I restored it in his garage. And I kept breaking gearboxes. did eight, five gearboxes in 18 months. And uh, I just finished studying motor vehicle engineering and business studies. And I thought, I've got to do something about this car's mess of my mm. head now. And developed a five-speed gearbox conversion for it. And that's how it all started. The, had you worked on sort of stuff at that point in time, or you were just like, I've got a car, I'm, I, can, I can probably fix this? Yeah, so my dad was a graduate engineer, and so he was at, had his own garage, but before that he was a design engineer for oh, various okay. other firms. And so I learned my engineering skills from him, although I went to college and studied engineering as well. I didn't learn much. I learned all the main skills from him. And um, so when I said I wanted to do this conversion, he said, right, let's sit down and do it. And we drew it nice. out on a piece of paper, we designed the kit, built it, put it in the car, and the rest is history. How did, how did it go? <laughs> Amazing. Um, it was just something like, gosh, I've got a gearbox, it's quieter, I've got a better drivetrain. And then I instantly thought, I can have more power now. Yep. <laughs> so I yeah, started yeah. learning about more power and tuning. And then I thought, mm, suspension and brakes aren't up to this now, I need to learn about that. Um, and I'm a very connective learner, so I, um, I need to get alongside people with the right skill sets to really get into something and understand it. And so I found people that were really good at brakes and really good at suspension and learned from them and then designed bits for my car. Nice. And then at what point did Frontline come along? So pretty much the same time. The 
Um, the gearbox conversion, um, I invited uh, Practical Classics to come down and have a look at it. So, and I think it was Paul Skilleter back then in the day. Mm-hmm. And he came down and did an article on it and just said, this is brilliant. It's really, really good. And nobody's done anything like this before. Yeah. And so that's kind of where it started. He did an article on it. We had people phoning up almost straight away saying, I have the same problems. Could you do a kit for me? And I just got married and my wife was working. We'd got a house and, but we could kind of afford to live off her income just about if we were careful. Yeah. So I said, look, can I give this a go? Cause I think there might be something in this yeah. and it's something fun and we both like cars. And, and so we did. And, um, that's how the business started. Nice. And at that point in time, how were people finding out about it? Just reading in magazines. There was no internet. Yeah. Mobile phones barely existed and they were just bricks with buttons that you did nothing. Um, and so it was literally just a magazine article. A magazine article would come out with a telephone number, would come through to me, and that was it. Nice. And, and so how much did it grow at that point doing the conversion? Um, I think we did... I think we did 11 conversions in the first year, which considering nobody had ever heard of it before, I think was that quite good going. Good. And, um, and it was, so that was the first bit. And it was uh, back in 94, I think, uh, that we incorporated into a limited company because we'd grown to a size where we've got other products now. We've got suspension and brake products. Um, and we needed to sort of put it on, on a more formal platform and took on my first main employee who's actually still with us working that's, today. That's good going. Was that quite a stressful addition? Going yes. like, I'm now employing someone. As soon as you employ people, you've got responsibility for them. Um, to make sure there's enough money coming in and we can pay the bills, which when you're, when you're a small company, well, yeah, any company is always a challenge at times. Um, but yeah, going that transition from being doing my own thing to employing somebody was really difficult, especially as I've never actually been employed by anybody. <laughs> so I've got no knowledge of what that's like. So yeah. to suddenly take that on and then be directing people to do what I do, want to do is was alien to me yeah yeah yeah. and then did you did what you were doing day to day shift i presume that has shifted quite a lot over the period up until now yeah so um in those early days you do everything you design things you make the prototypes you have them manufactured you build the kits up you advertise those you speak to the suppliers speak to the customers the trade customers and just do everything and drive around the country trying to find parts yeah to a little bit of everything. Um, and then so at what point in time did you start making like a a product? When did the LE, was it the LE50, was that the first? The LE50 was the first resto mod. Up to that point, we built and restored loads of cars for people. Um, when I say built, I mean as in ground up restorations. Okay. Um, yeah. As opposed to just doing a kit here and there. Yeah. Um, but up to that point, it was always led by the customer. Mm-hmm. And some customers know what they want, but the majority don't have enough experience about the whole concept, design concept of a vehicle to understand what difference putting sound deadening into the car makes yeah. to, to stiffening something up, to enhancing the way the, the dynamics of the vehicle feel so you get more feedback. They don't understand those things. Um, and the slightest change you make on a vehicle in any area can impact the joy or the pleasure of driving the vehicle at the end of the day, which ultimately is what it's about. And why I still do it, it's because I like messing around with cars. I like the pleasure of driving something that drives the way I wanted to drive. Yeah. And so that's in 2012, but it was 2011, we had the idea of, of doing a vehicle that was um, 
with all the things in it that we wanted to put into it mm. that we knew would actually work. And we set about it and that was the early, early 50. 2011. And at that point in time, this sort of resto mod idea, I guess had been a w- around for a while. I know I'm not really, were you, who was doing it around that time? Was anyone doing it around the time? I, I don't know. Eagleman? anybody. No, I don't, I don't honestly don't know anybody that was doing, uh, there are people restoring cars. Yeah. But somebody saying, this is a, this is a collection of everything, the best we do, and mm. putting into one package and saying, this is a package. I don't think there was anybody else doing that. And I wouldn't like to say that we were the first people to do a resto mod, but the term but resto early. mod didn't exist. Yeah. And it was coined after that. Um, what did you call it then? We just called it the Frontline Early 50 yeah. to celebrate 50 years of the MGB. And that was it. There was no resto mod term. <laughs> um, and a few people have said they think we probably are the forefront or the, the first early, people yeah. to do resto mods. I don't know. Yeah, definitely early. Oh, yeah, sure. Definitely early. And like when you start doing that, and you're saying, you know, you, you've picked all the sort of bits and done all the sort of stuff that you think need doing. And as a random person who, let's say I was going to buy a car, I wouldn't have a clue. What were some of the things that you're like, oh, okay, we've got fixed fundamental issues. Were there a lot of things with the fundamentals of the car that had to be changed? Um, it was really interesting. I had a conversation, if I go off piece a tiny bit. Totally. Um, there's a chap called Don Hater, who was the original draftsman and designer of the MGB. And he lived, he's, he's passed away now, but he lived three miles up the road from here. And we uh, invited him to come in and see what we do. It was the car club actually invited him to come in and see what he did, what we do. And he walked in the door, I think he was 72 at the time. And he was like, this is the car we wanted to build, to build. And I went, in what way? He says, You've got five link suspension. The first five MG prototypes had five link suspension on the rear. Nice. And he showed me a picture in a book that we've got downstairs. That I'd never clocked what was in there of this five link suspension in the back of this car. Nice. And the front suspension was supposed to have been a double whistle front suspension. It was supposed to have been a V4 engine and all kinds of things that would have elevated the technology of it. He got in the car, drove it, and was just blown away. And within I don't know, two minutes, he was drifting out of junctions and sliding it. And I'm going, it's got 72 and he can pedal still. I'm, I was impressed. And um, he just, he came back and just said, that's the car we wanted to build, but we weren't allowed to build. That's cool. Yeah. So I, is- for me, that was amazing because I was, I put my heart and soul into what I wanted for the car to be. And then for that person to say, this is the car we wanted it to be. And that's incredible. That's a really interesting sort of, conversation itself about a lot of cars is some people i don't i don't know whether i know any but i'm sure there are lots of people they sort of get very specific about this is how the car came out of factory Mm -hmm. and that is an interesting conversation because you could go right but it's been changed a bit since then people have tried to change stuff whatever but what was the intended like what if the people who were making it then could have sort of done the stuff they wanted without all of the budgetary constraints and design constraints and whatever, what would it have looked like? And like, is departing from that original thing a bad thing, a good thing, different? Who knows, you know, what do people prefer? prefer? Um, uh, I think you can typically, uh, when I look at other makes of vehicles, which I'm sure you'll probably ask me about later on, I, uh, vehicles that interest me, it's always the, the Mark 1 
right. the first of the edition, okay. because that's always the purest in my mind. Sometimes manufacturers manage to get back into that purity and, and create something special again. But on the whole, it's that vehicle that has that real DNA. Well, what do you think would be some standout examples of that? Um, the early split-screen camper, um, the early Sprites and MGs, the early Heelys. All the later ones had more and more features added to them, just made them slower, heavier, yeah. all the Jaguars. Um, so, you know, go back to something like an XK120. It's got beautiful styling. Yeah, there were some compromises and things because it was designed, that was, car was designed just to showcase the engine. Mm. It wasn't to, to sell as a car. They never intended to sell as a car. But the concept of that is a beautiful car. Yeah. It, it, is, it is interesting looking at those sorts of things. Like an example of not many cars keep developing. They stop. They stop making them. They might only make them for 10 years or whatever it is. And there might be two versions or... The one, the only one I can think of that's still going is the 911, and that has changed so much mm -hmm. since the original. Um, when I look at them now, I sort of swing from the very modern to the very original as like the sort of like I quite fancy like an early, early short wheelbase car, and then something really modern, and then like where you want to go in the middle is is sort of up to you. But it's it's interesting looking at different cars like e-types it's always the the first ones that everyone wants um yeah yeah and i think with the um the thing with the whole resto mod scene is people like you you know like the new porsches because they're so good um but the nostalgia you want you want to have the old one because of the looks and the yeah. and the feel of it and it's a, you know, a lot of people don't like driving a modern Ferrari because the aggro they get for driving one. Yeah. But a classic one, people just... It's cool. It's beautiful. It's cool. Um, and But you get into a classic of any kind that hasn't been modernized in some way and you probably won't use it much. Yeah. Because they're really hard to live with by comparison of what we're used to. And that's what we do is, you know, I like these cars to be able to live, to I like to use them and... Every time I set a design point, there's a kind of a three-point design point. One is it's got to be usable as an everyday vehicle. Right. It's got to be reliable and strong enough to do that and jump in, drive to Scotland, do the NC500 or go down to the Alps, yeah. or the Pyrenees, whatever, without question. And and then the other one is it's you know it's got to have some practicality, so it's got to be easy to live with. Otherwise, you, yeah. just, you won't use it when you go into town or to the shops or, or something like that. And then it's got to be capable of taking it on a track. You know, not necessarily full-blown racing, go and do a track day or get a really hard pasting around yeah. the Alps or something like that um, and then still come back and just pot around and enjoy it and for me that's the, the holy grail the trinity mm. of, of what the car needs to deliver and that's what we do and um, we then tailor the cars to individuals needs so we we'll always do little things for them just to make them very personal for themselves yeah because each person has their own particular use case car collection yeah. state of mind that's what i was talking about i went for a little drive earlier and i was actually talking about this i was saying it's really difficult to give your opinion on a car for example you can give the this is my opinion on this day at this time based on the scenario that i find myself in like you might be in a bad headspace and you like i've got to do a really long journey so in reality you just want something really comfy that you don't have to touch and you can just be in the wrong car so you fall out with that car but you could be in the Alps, you've got 20 minutes and you just want to go have something like mad, mm -hmm. set your hair on fire, then put it away 
and go something else. How do your, what are your sort of typical, do you have a sort of typical customer or what, where do lots of these cars sort of go to? Do they have, people have lots of cars, no cars, old cars, new cars? There are, it's a real mix. We've, we've got quite a few customers that have several cars. Um, one of the things that makes me happiest is when they actually sell some of those cars because they're just using our car nice. as their main car. And that always makes me feel good. And that happens quite a lot. Um, we've got quite a lot of customers that do a lot of miles. Um, we've got customers in Norway, for example, um, who will drive their car here, have a service, then go off down through Spain, Portugal, do all nice. that, bring it back here. Maybe haven't done 6,000 miles in a yeah. few weeks, come back here, have another service, sometimes <laughs> leave it here and then go That's back great. off to Europe again later in the year. Um, and then we've got customers in Switzerland and Germany and Holland and well, all over the world, there's loads in the States and Canada as well. Um, we don't get to see those ones as much, uh, but most of the European ones will drive back here once a year for a service and just do a road trip and come, come and see some friends in the UK. Yeah. So he's got some friends here as well. Um, and we've got a few customers that just use them as an occasional hobby car, but most of them use them. That's cool. Mm. And for a car that's based on an old Oh, now, what is, when was when were the MGB first coming out? So first early sixty two, um, yeah. To then be comfortable getting in something like that and driving it a lot, and just being like, I'm going to sit on the motorway, blah 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 blah, do all these things. That is really cool. When we were having a look around downstairs, um, sort of various cars were being pointed out. I think one was pointed out and was saying this owner had a bunch of, I think, older cars and has sold a few of them to buy one of the frontline cars because it's going to run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's, we chose the, the Mazda drivetrain initially because it's so durable. And then um, we didn't just upgrade that. All the suspension is upgraded and all the electrics are upgraded. And then, as we said earlier, the sound deadening. And then you can have decent audio because if you've got good sound, then you can actually listen to music yeah. in those cars, which sometimes you want to do or listen to a podcast totally. and stuff. Um, and other times you just want to have the windows down and listen to the soundtrack of the car. Um, but yeah, it is a case of they're there to be used. They have 10,000 mile service interval. Um, we say if you're doing track day stuff, we try to bring it down to 6,000 miles. Um, and that's it. It's just service is done in three hours. Yeah. In and out. That is cool. That is cool. And that, that idea, I was thinking about various like you know people I know that own different sorts of like I'm very much in the sort of have had a bunch of modern cars, mm. had some slightly older cars, but I'm sort of more in that field. Um, whereas I've got a family member who now that I think about it, I think has like twenty old cars, and the fact that I don't know what they are, I need to go and visit him and find out, <laughs> find out. But I suspect he has a lot of that sort of area, fifties, sixties, that sort of stuff which I presume most of it, I know sometimes you have to be taking them to MOTs and stuff, but I presume a lot of stuff doesn't run and they could see, do you think people, uh, I don't know whether you personally have been through this, you go through a journey of going, I want to own X car. And then the reality of like, do I use it? If I use it, how much do I have to then look after it? And do people go through a sort of ownership journey sort of cycle of, trying stuff and then coming back and then going, okay, yeah. I can see why you might want to have one. They, they do. And um, lots of them keep coming back to the same thing, whether that be a Porsche or an MG or a Jaguar or yeah. whatever it is. But once you start getting up to the level of um, detail that we go into the cars, the resto mod world, of people that really go through the fine detail of the cars, the customers are 
educated. They're very aware of what's going on. They're not just buying one of these on a whim. Yeah. Occasionally you get someone that says, oh, so-and-so said I've got to drive one of these, I'll have one of these in my life, and I trust yeah. them. So they just say, I'll have one. But most people are, um, they've been through the process. They've restored some cars. They've had cars modernized or yeah. things like that. Um, and so they've become, they're much more aware and they know what they want. And when they see something like this, they go, I can see the word's gone into that. That's what I want. Yeah. Does it make it, um, we should we talk, should talk in a bit about the various sort of things you offer and, and mm. whatnot. Um, what's the sort of price swing between the the petrol engine cars that you do? Because you do do an EV now. Um, what do they sort of start at? And yeah, so they, what have they sort of ended they up They start at around the 120 um, and up to about 170. And that's plus the base car. Has it been difficult? Because you can pick up an MGB for, I don't know, five grand? I, I actually have no idea. You can pick them up for less than that. Okay. So less than five grand. With with some of the other resto mod companies, or lots mm-hmm. of the cars are, let's say, 50 to 100, maybe more, if it's some crazy Ferrari that someone wants to restore. Has that been an in, how, an interesting journey of going, you can spend up getting towards, you know, 200 grand on an MGB? Has that, have you seen that change quite a lot over time? And has that been the sort of interesting process of talking to people about it and stuff? Um, I think it's changed. I think when we first started doing this, because there wasn't a benchmark, yeah. nobody really knew where to pitch things. And some of the rest of the models out there are astronomical money. Um, yeah. I think ours are genuine. You know, yeah. There's a gen- genuine number. And the, but the, the, the development over the years of, of the options of other things that people can do. Um, and I think you, know, you can go for cars that are you know, really hardcore driving machines right up to just super comfortable luxury. Mm. And it's finding that balance. And I think we kind of strike the balance. We can, we can swing to either of those um, spectrums and develop a car or build a car to somebody's own needs to suit that, which we do quite regularly. And the, the car I drove today. Yes. Uh, what was, how did the specs sort of vary? What are the sort of ends of the spectrum in terms of like a more Tory type car to a sort of more hardcore? Yeah. Product? So that's, that one is slightly more hardcore. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a more track focused, but you can dial it down really easy. So at the moment it's on a, a, a more road suspension setting and um, we change the geometry and change the damper set, spring and damper setting. So it's a more road, road orientated yeah. and put more road orientated tires. Whereas last year, um, September, I, put it into its track mode, took it out to France to do a track day with a group of friends and gave some serious piece of machinery a hard time out there. Nice. And that was, as one of the more hardcore, okay, it's, it's in its, is it, did you change the suspension out? Um, or did you just change the settings? Just, just, just the settings. Because um, I would say that was really comfy. It was like super comfy, surprisingly comfy. So, um, a lot of the suspension work that I learned, I learned from a chap called Roddy Harvey Bailey. Um, he was test driver for um, Colin Chapman, and he was also a Formula One test driver and suspension design engineer. How did you come across this chat? Um, through Roger Cook, Cook Report. Um, so Roger Cook was the pioneer of the investigative journalists. Okay, yeah. So he's, if you look him up, he's, he's yeah. still around, but he's you know he's not 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 active working these days. And he had um, a Costello MG, which is a, a V8 modified MG mm-hmm. that Ken Costello made in the. 90s, I think it was, 80s, 90s. And um, I 
wanted to go to the next level of development with multi-link suspension on the rear suspension. And he said, you need to have a chat with Roddy. So we drove up there, had a chat with Roddy, and I learned a load from him. And then between us, we designed this new suspension for the MGB, which is what's on there. And one of the things that Roddy taught me was that hard suspension doesn't necessarily mean good suspension. And so over the years, we've got softer and softer with the suspension. And there's recent years, we've worked with Nitron, you know, Nitron dampers. Mm -hmm. And they do a lot of rally stuff. They started doing motorbike stuff. And now they do, so they're main supplier for Lotus. They do loads of pro drive, loads of Porsche, and things like that, really high end stuff. Um, And they're only 15 minutes away from here, 20 minutes away from here. And Guy, the owner of it, is really into his motorbikes as well. And he and I get on really well. And he has an MG. And I said, any chance you could do something for us? And he went, I'd love to. I've been wanting to do something for you for ages. So um, we sat down and worked with his team. And I said, my brief to you is I want softer, more compliant, but more grip. Nice. And he went, that's what I want. Okay, we do that. And that's what you've just driven today. And it's the levels of grip, the confidence that inspires with it is just phenomenal. It was, so I, we went for, I don't know, 20 minutes out. We drove probably 10 minutes, swapped over 10 minutes. And um, I sat in the seat. I'm just like, this is just really, I don't know what, like that seat is really comfortable. Mm-hmm. That seat in that car for me was great. Um, I know you do some option sort of stuff around the seats. What, what's the situation with the seats? So we couldn't get an off the shelf seat that was really comfortable. We used to use the uh, Mazda MX-5 Mark I seats mm-hmm. um, and they're pretty good, quite comfortable we couldn't get the, the adjustment in there because car manufacturer seats are designed for the 95th percentile of, of users. So, you know, that's a wide spectrum. And that's evolved quite a lot over yeah, the last as an adjust, 50 yeah. years. And um, so what we do is we, we designed our own seat frame um, and seat mounting mechanism. And so this is our base setup is in the car, which is what you sat in there. And then every customer comes in and we have a seat fitting and we'll stack the foams and change the foams in the seat until they go, right, I'm super comfortable with this. And then we'll get them a cup of coffee and a magazine and just leave them there for a while yeah. and come back and go, are hey, you still comfortable? And to this day, we always get customers come back and go, this is the most comfortable car I've ever been in. Um, and we've had customers with, you know, bought his Mercedes SL, yeah. something crazy in, and said, please, can you work on the seats on that? Because they're not comfortable <laughs> enough. Your MG is so much more comfortable than that. And we've modified the seats for his car. Nice. Which is crazy. It's Genuinely, great. that it was really comfy. And there were just the way the armrest, which is also nice and yeah. padded, it's just there. But even that, the height of the armrest and the position of it, we set to the person. Okay. Because whoever it's set to is very similar to me. Yeah. So everybody's got slightly different arm lengths, body lengths, and everything like that. Um, so to give you an example, my wife and I went to um, southern Italy a few years ago and went there. And she's got a 62 MGB Roadster. And we went down as far as Amalfi. And then from Amalfi, we drove all the way back up to Portofino in the one day along the coast road. That's a long drive. But that was good. I think it was about 640 miles. That, that's region. far. Yeah. And uh, we got there, got to the hotel and got out of the car, went in, had a shower, went down for dinner. Just fine. Yeah. After doing that kind of distance, most people, if I did that in a modern car, I would be tired and aching and knackered. Yeah. But we had the roof down, we cruised along the coast, just drove all day. Stop for petrol and a sandwich, and that was it. Nice. Do they do they sit at like? Because you don't have cruise control or any of that sort of stuff. What's the sort of natural motorway speed that they sort of depends sit on at? what country you're sitting in. But does the, the sort of engine have like a nice place, or actually, um, it will sort of do whatever. 
it depends again it depends on the engine and okay. then we do different gear ratios oh, okay. drivetrain ratios right. as well. Right, so, yeah. um, so the one you've been at today its sweet spot is about 85 90 okay and it'll sit at that all day long um i did a stint overseas last year where we did about an hour and a half 120 um that's that's going along in some ground yeah little mgb um but the car will do 160 so it's what's it feel like at 160 have you done 160 yeah i have actually um it's surprisingly okay i mean i'm always nervous of any car at those kind of speeds because if something goes wrong yeah um and brakes play a much bigger part than people realise. Most people don't realise if you're doing 100 plus miles an hour in almost any modern car, unless it's a performance one, and you try to stop in one go, you won't. You'll overheat your brakes. And, you know, it's only something that's really? designed. Yeah. You just, the brakes aren't designed to do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're in a, in a Range Rover, for example, mm, yeah, okay. you know, doing 100 miles an Two hour, plus and you, tons. And you, you try to stop. But, you know, the same will happen with all, a lot of modern cars, um, unless they aren't built for that more performance driving. And our cars will do that easily. Nice. And then the the brakes is a before. Okay, I want to rewind a tiny bit because you also do a seat fitting for the passenger. Yes, which I've not come across before. Partners aren't always the same size as each other. This is true. So we've got one lady owner, and she is she has longer legs than her husband, and um, noticeably so. So we tailored the seats. And what we found, we found a way of doing an insert swab that we could swap from one to the other so they were both perfectly comfortable. So the same base seat with an insert swab ah. for him or for her. And they just swap them around. Yeah, yeah. The fact is he doesn't get to drive the car. He's not allowed to drive it. She drives it all the time. <laughs> but the options there, because I guess that is the thing. Like it's, you're not always going to have the same person driving. I, I, you were saying, I think someone was saying people have done it with their kid as the, yeah. the passenger and... And well, trim, trim, presume, trim the booster the seat. As an adult. Um. By now, yes, <laughs> yeah. we've trimmed trim the booster seat. So that's a car, um, that one of those ones, um, that particular customer um, has an LE50, had the booster seat trimmed in the same leather. He now keeps that, doesn't need it anymore, um, and is now having that vehicle converted to electric. Okay. And he's going to pass that on to his son as an electric version. So it has a journey that's that fun. involves over the years. And with the, so with the brakes... The brakes are, are they assisted or unassisted? Um, and with the brakes, as you say, have been upgraded, et cetera, is it easy to lock up the fronts? Um, or like, it does it require? We, we, do, we do three levels of, of brakes, effectively. So we do our standard road spec, uh, so like a, tour, a touring spec brake, and then the sports spec, which is the one you just, just yeah. drove. Um, and with that one, yes, you can lock them. But unlike, um, because there's no ABS no traction control or anything on these cars. Yeah. So you have to make the car or the driver feel driver-centric in the car. So you feel like you're at the center point of everything. And that way you can feel what the brakes are doing, you can feel what the traction is doing. And you can very quickly just explore the limits of the vehicle and just know what, yeah. what you're capable of. And you can feel what the brakes are doing before you start to lock it. So yes, you can lock them, but you just instinctively know what's going on all the time. And you've... I guess you adjust it so that it's not like I've applied 20% brake and that's it. <laughs> Off no. we go. No. <laughs> it, it, if you drive a modern vehicle, the brake force tends to be quite similar regardless of what you do with the pedal because it's all modulated yeah. and controlled by computers. Whereas ours isn't the harder you push, the harder you brake. Um, but we've got a really good servo, so that gives you the assist on there. Um, 
and then the balance of it because what you want is the whole vehicle to kind of squat you don't want the car to pitch and dive yeah you want the whole vehicle to squat so we've got rear disc brakes as well and then we then next step up from that is different pad materials for different types of uses and um, and then we with the v8s we go right up to a six pot 310 mil which i know we're getting into techie speed yeah. now but but basically that you can if you want to stand it on its nose you can stand it on when its you're nose. going 160 and you want to stop you just stop you stop is 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 an it's an amazing experience it's the acceleration and the braking are such that you just you reach speeds incredibly quickly but then you can wipe that speed off and just just retard it so fast that you just feel really comfortable and comfortable yeah you just know what it's going to do and it's like the one i went to say that, that is quick that is not a slow that is a quick car that's a four second sub four second yeah. 60 car <laughs> which, which is you know okay that, that that in my head i went that's enough like for this car that is definitely enough but you've now done a v8 yes where did the idea for the v8 come from so v8s have been put in mgs before and we i don't know as as time goes on my brain's always ticking away and my engineering brain i'm always um thinking of the next feel and sensation and most most of my design engineering with cars is a sensation it's a feeling i feel Mm. the dynamics and i feel what i want the car to do and and that car now drives the way i had this yeah imaginary car in my mind um and that's the result of it um but i wanted a lot more power but control and refinement so we completely redesigned the induction system the engine internals the cylinder heads everything so it's a it's effectively a new version of the rover v8 engine yeah um which is incredibly tough and that the internals will take 750 horsepower if you force force induct it which we'd never do um 375 in that spec is ample yeah um and we we do an s version which you could take sort of 410 it's a bit revier a bit a bit you know blippier on the throttle um but whether you'd ever explore that on the road i don't that's quite that's punchy this is punchy yeah even at 375 brake that's punchy because what are they are they like 1100 kilos um almost identical weight to the original b series engine which was cast iron because these are um uh so the aluminium engine so the whole that car weighs i think it's 1132 kilos okay but it's fully trimmed with sound deadening wet weight all the stuff everything in there yeah so that's that's a decent power to weight ratio i imagine that's that's quite pokey it's lovely it sounds (laughs) sounds incredible And you say you're you you sort of trying to design the car that you're looking for at that sort of point in time. Has has that shifted? Do you want a different car now to five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago? Yeah. So when I was younger, I just wanted everything to be aggressive and go, 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 go. Yeah. And just that's that's crazy. And I still do sometimes, but I recognise that it's only for short periods of time that I want to do that. Yeah. And I've still got cars that are like that because I still need that but sort of yeah. being in something that's really animal and um but then over time you want refinement but with more performance yeah and so that's kind of where we've evolved through so we're, we're now building cars that have even greater levels of performance if you want it and um, but there's more refinement and more control as well nice yeah so and you're still you're still in this scenario within the realms of an mgb Yes. So you've not you're not in something that weighs three tons and as a rolls or whatever. It's just like a more refined version or a more raw version. Um, so we, we, and with that engine, is that uh, electronic fuel injection and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So it's full 
um, energy management system, uh, fly-by-wire throttle, you know, oh, it's okay. all in there. Because that was one of the things on this car that I drove. So that's on throttle bodies, right? Um, and I've driven some modified 964s um, that were also on throttle bodies and stuff. And one thing I don't like about that general setup is the initial pedal pressure to sort of get everything moving. Okay. Like there's an, if you're pressing the pedal, there's like a, a hard bit to start with and then you're into the throw and then you, off you go. Um, this, I was fine. Yeah. And like, the only reason that you've, the reason that they've got that issue is the throttle bodies are not set correctly. Right. Because their throttle bodies to maintain the idle, because they probably haven't got proper idle control on them. They're having to have the throttle plates really closed, which means you've got a vacuum on the plates. So it feels like you're the, you almost have to click through that first bit of the pedal yeah. travel. Whereas if you've got idle control, which we do on all of our cars, you can have the throttle plates open a little bit more. You don't get that pressure that you need. So which means when you're pulling away, you can be refined. And our cars are set to... The, there's so much tech in them that people just wouldn't even realise because mm. you know, we've got barrow sensors, atmospheric pressure sensors, and internal in the chamber, the, in the chambers we've got pressure sensors. So that allows the computer to control the engine in any altitude, any weather condition, and give it idle and perfect control at any point. Nice. Just like you get on a brand new car. It's, it's as close to the new car as you can get except we haven't got all the, the silly emissions controls so we can have the car that just behaves the way we want to. The way you want to. That was one thing on my um, backdated SC that I had until very recently that I wanted. I want. I would have loved, if I was to change, the next thing to change, which the, these things, as you very well know, they always, you're always like, I can change the next thing, the next thing, would have been like a full engine management throttle system. So you just turn it on and it, just turn the key rather than like set the carbs yep. and, 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and all that fun stuff. Um, so at what point in time you're doing these really analog, if you've done a rowdy one with a V8 in it, that's also can be refined. Did you go, oh, maybe we should look at doing an EV? That was customer pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I've got an issue with EV new vehicles and, um, I think the carbon footprints are high. We can go on and on about this because it's a, a bit of a, a pet issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I said to our customers that um, wanted to go EV, if we do it, then we do it the frontline way and we create something that still has a driving experience. Because to my mind, there's no point having something like one of our cars that's just a, a milk float. Then you, you just, might as well have a new exactly whatever Prius or whatever, yeah. just because it's, it's just going to be boring. And you can do it, and it's still yes, you're still driving a classic. And um, so what we did was two things: we maintained the gearbox, so you still got a five-speed gearbox in there. Okay, uh, you still got a flywheel and a clutch, so you drive it like a normal car. And the the only difference is that when you're pulling away, you don't use the clutch because the motor isn't spinning. Do you need to use the clutch to change gears? Yes. So you, once you're driving, you drive it like a normal petrol engine car. And then the motor, we've tuned the motor so it behaves like an internal combustion engine. So it rolls up on power and then ramps off when it gets to the top of the cab. Okay. And we've given it the same rev range as the original engine. So you get in it and it's like an electric version of an LE50. Right. And it's, it's an uncanny experience that you just, you've got the sensation of the noise of the engine and the gearbox, which changes with every gear. The torque amplification changes with every gear. So you feel like you're still 
engaged in driving and you can downshift to come into a corner and blip the throttle and then accelerate out the corner just like you can with a normal engine. Interesting. Yeah. And that's fun. And so we actually, as a collective here, didn't want to like it. Mm. We were doing it out of demand. And when we got it sorted, we were like, I want to take that one home because it's really good fun. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's changed all of our minds now. That is, that is interesting because I, up until fairly recently, didn't really understand uh, EV conversions that had a gearbox and like why you'd bother in any way, shape or form. It's a lot more work. It's more expensive. Uh, why would you do it? And I had this presumption that but it doesn't make a difference. Like you're going to get full torque from zero revs. So it doesn't almost matter what gear, like what's the point in even having gears, like all this. And then I went to see um, Electrogenic. Yeah. And do you get your powertrain from someone else? We've done joint development. Who do you use? It's, it's just, it's, it's an in-house development that we, okay. we, we use technical partners with. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to them and they, they were showing me one of their manual cars. And they were like, the thing is, like the motor, the motor in that car spec'd with that transmission is revving to max revs but then you put it through the gearbox and that comes out and you do basically get a naught to sort of 10,000 RPM sort of type situation. And then you do need to change gear. If you want to go faster, you do need to change gear. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is interesting. This is different, different. You have sort of made it more complicated, but at the same time, you're trying to make it driving experience. Oh, maybe there's something in this. And I've not driven one with that setup yet, but I think for me, yeah. If you're going to drive an interesting vehicle or a sports car, you're doing so because you enjoy it. It's yeah. not just a case of going to the shops or doing the school run. You're doing it because there's passion there. And for me, everything that we do has to have passion. Otherwise, we don't do it. Yeah. I found recently, and I think this is an interesting one to look at. If you've got a few cars available to use mm. and you might have gone, I've bought that one because I love looking at that car and it's like my dream car. And then you find you don't use it. That's quite odd. Because you're like, but why am I not using it? You're like, well, actually, it's because some convenience factor. I'm just going to the shops. What's the point in like going through all that process and then overheating and not having any fun? <laughs> um, so, and, and are most of the people that are doing the EVs, is this going to be a car that they're literally driving around town using a lot? Yes and no. Um, we've got customers now specifying that they want ranges of over 200 miles, which is fine. We can do that. Yeah. Um, and more performance. Again, we can do that. Um, I don't think any of them actually live in town. They're all yeah. using these cars. One's going to live in Cornwall. Um, another one um, is in sort of uh, Cotswolds area. Yeah. Um, and yes, there is another one that's going, going to London at the moment. But that's generally not why they're just doing it because they just want to enjoy the car they want still. to enjoy yeah. it and use it and have uh, something that this sort of ev com conversion companies generally seem to talk about is like and it's something you've talked about is they had lots of our customers have an old car or a few old cars and none yeah. of them work yeah and they're like if i convert this to ev i will use it and it will work now you could also do the frontline situation and you'll have a car that will work um, but you might have chosen to, for whatever reason, to do EV. Um, I, was, I was looking on your website and the, I think it, it gives sort of horsepower numbers. Now, 
horsepower numbers on electric cars we know are all a bit funny it's a bit weird to work out yeah this is a bit of an odd thing um and i but i can't remember i think it where was it i actually wrote this now um it was saying oh, 220 newton meters of torque but it was like 150 brake horsepower something like that um what does what's that in performance terms is that Oh, eight and a half seconds, 8.8. 8. So that's, that's quite okay. So it's quite okay. Slow. It's it's not it's not it's not accelerating. Um, but that's the that was the generation one prototype. Right. Um the gen two is three hundred and fifty newton meters, um, two hundred and forty mile range, and should be about five and a half seconds, not sixty. That's, that's plenty quick enough. We can do more. Um, but you then start getting into aggressive realms of you know, if you want to just go full throttle on off the line, it's fine, but there's no driving pleasure with that. And it's, you know, unless yeah. you, that's almost like you know, getting your V8 engine to 5,000 RPM and dropping the clutch. Yeah. Uh, things are going to break, you know, or it's just going to be scary. So having it mapped so it just kind of builds on the power on the throttle, yeah, cuts the 0 to 60 time a little bit, but you get the driving experience. Yeah. And it's a car to enjoy and drive around. It's just, that's, the, that's the point is to enjoy it. There'll be someone that will want to put a motor on each wheel and whatever, whatever. But that, that, that's always <laughs> going to happen. Someone's going to put a thousand horsepower in a car and and, and burn the wheels off. Um, that's interesting. So, okay, you've got the V8. Are you still doing non-V8 cars? Yeah, yeah. So we work on everything from the standard B engines um, or the A engines with the midgets and sprites. Uh, we do quite a lot of conversions with MGCs. Um, C is an amazing conversion. So... Um, the MGC was a six-cylinder inline um, that didn't build for very long. It got some pretty poor reviews because mm-hmm. they d- didn't get the handling sorted on the cars um, and it wasn't particularly quick. So you yeah. might as well have the V8s and that's where the V8 carried on being made. Um, but we've developed the, the C engine with special cams, roller cams, engine management system, fuel injection, and turned that into a super tourer. Uh, and our customers have got those just rate it as possibly the best touring car they've ever had. Nice. I kind of agree with them. When you drive it, there's something about that which is spectacular. Um, and it's, again, it's the car that should have been made, but they never quite got to it. Yeah. So, yeah, so everything in, in the range, really, from standard V8s, standard Bs, MGCs, all of those ranges. But we, with all of them, we bring them up to a modern spec. Yeah. And suddenly... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. The car's a joy to drive again. And that process, uh, you do a little run through of when a car comes in, mm-hmm. what happens to it? So I was in like an LE build yeah. illustration. So um, we've got a car downstairs, which has come from Norway. Uh, we seem to have 
quite a few customers in Norway. Um, I think they're quite adventurous people and mm. enjoy enjoy life. And um, he drove that car here as a, as a V8 Roadster, and we stripped it. The body's in incredibly good condition. Um, we'll do any repairs and modifications so it becomes better than new. And then any additions to the vehicle that he wants to add to it, whatever they might be. And then we've, we go through the process with every customer. We sit down and really understand what they want, really get into their psyche. And then we spec the car with them. And that's literally down to what type of suspension, what type of brakes, what type of interior. And then we start getting into the materials and the stitching, or the contrasting or, or um, a blend. And so that we our, our spec sheets are anywhere between sort of three to seven pages long, depending on the detail of things that they want okay, on the vehicle. Yeah. So you can literally, it's, it's far more detailed than, say, having a tailored suit or a dress or something. You're literally going through every aspect of the vehicle, whether it be dynamically, visually, trim, um, safety, everything, uh, and then fun features like champagne cabinets and yeah. uh, little uh, brandy holders and things like that. Nice. So some crazy things and some fun things and heated dog beds. and um, Heated dog yeah, beds? And nice. um, bike racks and all kinds of things. You, you name it. It's, it's, it's amazing what we've done for people. And, um, and then once that spec's done, we send them a copy of the spec with then a painted model of their car, oh, some cool. samples of the trim, all stitched up in all the designs and everything that they want to do. And they're sent, sent to the home and they sit there and just look at on, on the driveway or in the house on the kitchen table and whatever and just get comfortable and go, yeah, that's right. And then I think a, a large part of that is the journey of, of specking a vehicle is why quite a lot of our customers come back again and again. Um, we've got one customer who's on his third build now. Um, <laughs> and he, he literally said, I'm going to just keep doing it because I just love the process so much. Yeah. And he uses it for a while and then he'll right, sell it on, let's do the next one. And that's, for me, that's... You know, the ultimate that's really just, cool and it's the experience that they go through there it becomes a for some of them it's almost a life-changing experience because it's like wow can i just really get something that's just tailored for me and it's great with the, if someone's been through it like a few times and I've, I've heard this sort of story with some other other builders of you know the customer has just yeah. loved the process mm-hmm. so much that when they got to the end they've kind of gone Oh, that's <laughs> kind of it. Now. You're going to with the car, and then we're never going to talk again. Like, yeah. oh, I want to talk again. Let's do another one. Um, do they? Because you you said at the beginning, like you know, we're sort of like, what car do you want? What car are we going to build for you? And then I imagine you kind of go, yeah, but what do you really want? And then like, no, but but seriously, like, what do you actually want? And then they've been through a build process, and then they want to do another car. How does that does that sort of evolve? Do you think you get closer to the original in their head, possibly them, or they go, uh, okay, I've built this perfect car. Now I want one for a different country, and I'm going to go on a different start, or I'm going to have a different, I'm going to have a convertible. It's a mixture. Sometimes it's they evolve and grow, which happens a lot. So their their journey changes, and they go, actually, now I don't want a car that does all of those yeah. things. I want a car for doing this now. And and sometimes we just make a few alterations to the vehicle. We don't need to build yeah. another vehicle entirely. Other customers already know what they want and order two vehicles to be restored. Um, so we've got a Roadster and a GT that are going out to New Zealand mm. soon. And the gentleman's bought one for himself and one for his dad. 
That's cool. Which is really cool. I had to tell my son about it straight away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, you fancy doing this in yeah, the future. Yeah. And then we've got another customer who's um, got a base in Germany and in Malta. And so we built him an MGC, Sports Tourer for Malta, and a GTV8 for Germany. Cool. They're both completely different specs, uh, different colors, different trim options, loads of things that are different. Um, but he had in mind his two children and his daughter's going to get the Roadster and his son's going to get the GT. Nice. At some point. I better not mention names because I don't know if they know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they, um, so he specs them with them in mind as well as himself in mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's lovely. And, and it's surprising about cool. cars. It's, it's almost like a Mila watch. It's, it's kind of yeah. you know, pass on to the next generation. That's way cooler. I feel like it's way cooler than a watch. But I wouldn't mind if someone gave me a watch either. No, no exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, I don't know. That was kind of a dream for me. We're just, I wanted people to, because I, when I get a car right, I don't want to stop to fill up with fuel even. I just like, I'm enjoying the car so, mm. so much. And that's what I kind of wanted to get my customers to that point where yeah. they just go, I just, I don't want to stop driving it. I just love it so much. And we, we do get that with a lot of them. And it's, it's amazing how some cars, I've got this with my 911 at the moment, where I owned a very similar car before and I didn't, drive it that much but this mm. one i drive a lot more mm. and I, I was thinking about it today it's like sometimes you just a car is more right or whatever and it crosses a threshold there's obviously some threshold where you go yeah but i'm going to take that one and getting to that point is difficult it's a bit like making good life choices and um, when you make the right choice you just know and you're comfortable with it and if you've got a car right, which is why we spend a lot of time trying to understand our clients mm. to really get them to the point where we go, right, okay, you're asking for a lot of power, but you're saying, actually, you want to be able to go and do this tour yeah. and go to these places. And The two aren't compatible. You need to dial something back. Yeah, something um, has to give. Yeah. You can't just be max. And everything. then and my, my goal then, or our goal as a team is then for them to come back to us and go, thank you. Nice. You helped me, and now I love the car. And they live with it. And you do, if, if you don't... If there's something about any car that you just go, oh. it's the moment you've had that sigh and you think, am I going to take that one or that one? You might as well not bother. Yeah. You know, and I make decisions about cars on a, a snap of a finger. Just literally, I, I sit in a car and go, no. Yeah. Instantly, just instantly, no, I won't like this car. Sometimes I don't even drive them. <laughs> and just, just no. So, and I think instinctively you do know that, just not everybody's able to work it out or because they haven't had an experience with it. And hopefully yeah. we can help with that. Yeah, because if you'd asked me 10 years ago, like uh, for me, it would it would have been a 911 at that time of, of like, you're going to do a custom build or whatever. And you've picked, let's say 964, because everyone does those. Um, I would have gone, I want the, the fastest engine, the rawest setup, the blah, 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 at that point in time. And then a while ago, I remember seeing a video series of Gordon Murray doing a... I feel like it was maybe a Cortina or something like that mm -hmm. with, um, I apologize, I can't remember what that name is, but a company. And he'd run through some engine options, I think with Cosworth of like what they were going to do. And he'd opted for like the middle one because mm -hmm. uh, it was like a bit smaller displacement, revved a bit sweet, it didn't have as much power. Like maybe it was a bit talkier down low, that sort of situation. And I went, that's interesting. Like, why has he done that? Mm. And then now... Mm -hmm. If you said to me you could have 
600 horsepower in your road car. I go, I don't want 600 horsepower. I've driven 600 horsepower and I don't want it. It's not going to make my life more fun. It's actually going to make it more challenging. Possibly quite more stressful. <laughs> but that is a that, and that is like a journey. It is, yeah. Um, I wonder the idea of specking a car and then we all change. And then possibly by the time it arrives, you want something else. It's quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think because we are, the vehicles we build, as you experienced today, it's a very comfortable vehicle. Yeah. And it soaks up all the bumps in the roads really well. And if a customer comes back to us, which they have never done yet, and said, can I have a harder suspension? We'll do that for them. Yeah. There's not a big change. Yeah. And that's quite easy to do. Just change the springs and the roll bars and reset the dampers and, and you're done. And if somebody's going to be doing, decided that you know, they're going to turn that car into a hill climb car or something like that, fine, that's what you want. But you won't enjoy it on the road. So we don't give them that choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, you have a, some partners or an associate in Australia. What's, how's this come about and why Australia? So David Dyer uh, started off as a, a customer. Just really love what we do. He's always loved MGs. Um, he uh, ran an electronics wholesale company, I think it was. And but his passion was the MGs. And so when he started stepping out of that business, he said, "Oh, I'd really want to do is, is this." And he phoned me up and said, "Tim, I really love what you do. I'd really like to be your agent in Australia." I mm. went, "Okay, this is cool." Um, but I'm always cautious about these things because you, you need to develop a relationship with people to really get to know them yeah. and work together. So he came over here a couple of times and done some work with him. And, and it, it just grew and grew to the point where we went, yeah, we both feel really comfortable with this. And um, so it was last year we formalized it and said, right, let's set it up as Frontline Australia. And so that's what we've done. So we, we still do some of the specking here, still do the trim here all the parts and everything will be shipped out there. Um, and he's got a team of guys that can build the car and restore the car to the same standards that we do. And we've given them all the training and development for that side of it. So he's effectively our agent yeah. in Australia. That's cool. And then does he sell mainly to Australia or other parts of that region as well? Generally Australia, New Zealand, Australasia. Yeah. That's cool. Is it a popular car over there? Massively so. Yeah, the MGA is even very, is more popular than as many MGAs in America as there are in Australia as there are in America. Um, the MGB commands more status over there than it does here. As you find in most parts of the world, if you go to um, yeah anywhere outside the UK, the MG commands a lot more respect than it does in the UK. Oddly yeah, enough, guess, um, it's just kind of I don't know that's why, funny. I don't know that's why, but it always has done. Do you think as as time goes on, and because it is an older older car now, the people that sort of remember it when they were young mm -hmm. are now older. Yeah. Do you get getting younger people interested or a younger audience? Have you found that change? Um, is that something you like? Until fairly recently, um, the younger generations weren't into this kind of thing, but yeah. now they're going. These cars are cool. And modern cars are really boring. And if you take a badge off them, you can't tell what they are. Yeah. And they're just, there's no engagement to them. And so those people that want something fun and cool, they're really getting into this scene. And there's a massive diverse scene for, for that. Um, but we do have quite a few younger customers. And, um, you know, 
number of celebrities as well. And they they just love them. And part of it's, you know, some of it's their grandparents had one or whatever. Yeah. We've got one guy who um, his dad left him his MG in his will. So his grandfather left him his will, MG, MG in his will, and but left him some money as well. Oh, nice. And he came to us and he said, could you build this up to a frontline LE50 spec? Because the car was in really good solid condition. So we said, yeah, we could do that. And he's still got that car. And his dad had a go in it. And his dad loved it so much that he bought an Abingdon. So oh, now nice. they go and do track days together in the two MGs. That's cool. And that's really cool. And that's, that is really it's, cool. it's, you know, you, there's no point having a car like this or any other resto mod if you're not going to do stuff with it. If you're just going to park it in a corner and look yeah. at it, what's the point? There's got to be a purpose. And yeah, we just like to get out there and enjoy places. It sounds like there's lots of sort of interesting stories amongst the customers of like why the build, what they're going to use it for, which fast forward 20 years or whatever, those memories, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And those memories are only going to grow. Um, we start this year doing, we've done a lot of, wife and I have done a lot of touring with the cars, but this year we're starting tours with some of our clients as well. Sounds like um, a good idea to and me. Just because they want to have fun, they want to go and do things, and it might it might encompass going to a visit for somewhere else on somewhere else on the way, or go and do a bit of uh, a morning on a track somewhere, and then go for a tour around. And they can see some of the new parts, the new developed things on the developed car, if possibly you yeah, know that was of interest. You never know. <laughs> that's fun. I think that's, and that is like you said. You, and I know you do lots of things throughout the process for sort of added value. I mean, as you were saying, someone's literally got to the end and gone, I want to do the process again. Um, you do, I don't think any, I presume none of these are sort of secrets, but you, you do like a book and that sort of stuff as part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, sort of, it's all part of the journey and it's the, um, it, it is a journey and a process for us. We get involved in every single build mm -hmm. and we like to get to know everybody that's, that's having their vehicle built. And uh, it does become a family. It feels like a family. Do you get a lot of them back? In terms of... In terms of resale or when people want to get... Resale's only just starting to happen. I think that's because of just mostly demographics. And um, the resale market, we have a, a cherished program, uh, which Connor set up. And that's uh, where one of our previous builds, previous restorations, they'll bring the vehicle um, to us, we'll inspect it. And if it's of good enough quality still, so it's not been left in a pool of salt for the yeah. rest of its life. And we'll bring it in, service it, bring it up spec, maybe do a few alterations to meet what the current customer's requirements are, and then offer it for resale. Um, but we do it on a completely transparent, open book basis. So the customer, the original owner of the vehicle, receives 100% of the funds from the sale of it, and he'll then pass some to us, plus any work that he's had done. And the new owner might ask us to personalize a few things on the yeah. vehicle and then we give a warranty to the new owner nice so it doesn't matter how old we've got um one from 2012 downstairs um and that we're happy to put a 12 months warranty on or six months warranty on that um with, with no issues whatsoever one thing i and i was talking about with i think it was connor is it connor we were talking to earlier yeah um is the fact that and, and i've driven early models of some well-known brands um resto mods and i didn't necessarily like them but i've now come back and seen the later versions and funnily enough when you're starting out you you're working on it and you're doing your best but like it takes time to sort of progress 
And the newer ones, I've gone, oh, actually, no, hang on a minute. They're, what they're doing now is, is really good. Um, and so I shouldn't judge them by the early ones because it's evolved. But these cars have the same name. So, for example, you've got your LE50, which you're still doing, which you started 10, 11 years ago or so. Um, presumably, one made in year one, you've actually changed a lot since one made now. Yes and no. There's an awful lot of processes that are exactly the same. And um, don't forget, we've been restoring cars for 20 years prior to that. Yeah. So when we actually did the LE50, most of what we did, we knew what would work. And, we, and it still applies today. Um, there have been a few technology advancements, a few material enhancements. Um, and then over the years, we've obviously, with high performance vehicles, we've then developed more suspension and more brakes and uh, more powerful brakes. And all of those things can be retrofitted okay. to the earlier cars. So you're only really looking at those things. Uh, the fundamental car itself is still the same restored car. Um, and if it's been looked after, you can have a look at the one that's downstairs. Yeah. It's, it doesn't look like a 13-year-old car or 12-year-old car. Um, it looks it doesn't, you know, we put them up next to the one that's just been built today, restored today, and you can't really tell much of a difference to it. So yeah. there's lots of the things that don't. It's more the personalization that varies over the years for the customers. Okay. And most, most of the people having the, sort of buying a second-hand one will upgrade the suspension and the brakes because they go, why wouldn't I? You know, yeah. You've put the development into it. We know it's Relatively good. minimal exactly. extra yeah. cost. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting seeing these things over time and how they, and in, in terms of you've not sold many back, but values wise, how are they sitting versus um, what people have paid? And Generally, uh, they're now about the same level, if not higher, than when they purchase the vehicles. Nice. Which is good. Um, so we've got one going to at the moment. He's had it for almost 12 years and he's going to get back almost what he paid for it. I mean, that's the dream. <laughs> yeah. It makes buying a lot easier. Yeah, it doesn't adjust, yeah. Sort of a, yeah. on the cards at least. Yeah. And it's interesting, we, we got contacted by a company called Charles and Dean. Um, they do finance? specialist finance, yeah. yeah. And um, and we went, why do we want to speak to somebody that does finance? Our customers don't normally do that. And they said that you'll find some that just don't like to put all of their money into one thing. They'll just they'll spread it over several things and have several toys. And, um, and they said, well, give us some examples and the residuals and returns that they gave us were just outrageous. Just so, so, so good. So it's, it was almost like, well, why would you, why would you, yeah, why would you not finance it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit old school. I don't do finance on stuff. So um, for me, that's like, well, I, yeah. I don't really do that, but lots of people do. So, And if you looked at like right now, it's a bad time, not a great time to be using finance, but two years ago, if you can borrow money at 2%, one half, okay, car finance wasn't going to be like that, maybe four, and you've got a business and you're using cash and you get 8%, 10% return somewhere else, you kind of like, there's a kind of strong case to be like, you're an idiot if you don't, but then things change. Um, but yeah, no, that's, it's, it's, it's cool to see things coming back. And then as a, if you're a potential customer, I think it's, it removes a lot of worry because we all know, if you took, I think this is the beauty of having a product, like you say, rather than offering services around. Because if I came in and you didn't, it wasn't like the LE50 or LE60 or something that I bought and people know it's a frontline LE60, 
I go, I've got an MGB. Can you do the suspension? Can you do an engine? Can you restore it? And then it comes to sale and people are like, yeah, I'll give you like six grand because it's like a really nice one. Like you've spent money on it, but so what? Yeah, so we don't do restorations of other people's vehicles unless it's a total frontline restoration, okay. which is everything gets stripped and everything gets restored to a better than new. Um, so it's, it's better than a zero mile restoration effectively. Um, and then we put our name to it. And that is what commands the value further down the line, as opposed yeah. to a car that's had a bit of work done here and there. Um, but we've got loads of customers that enjoy the process of, of improving their MG and they'll, they'll set a budget of how much they'll spend each year on improving their, their MG and they'll buy the parts most and have the local garage fitted okay. or fit it themselves. And, uh, and that's, we, we ship the parts all over the world for people that do that. And that's a really you know, great thing to do. And it's, but it's not the same as a frontline restored vehicle. Okay. That is one that we've taken back completely. Everything back to bare metal, everything to the highest possible standard, and then tailored to the individual. That's a frontline car. And 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 that works quite well having the two departments as such. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've always done that. Um we started as a parts business, um, but then people very quickly said, Well, could you fit Yeah, you make all the parts, can you? Yeah. And so we started doing that. And then people said, you know. Can you do it? Yes, but your car's got some issues. We need to do some body work on it first. And so we started doing that. And um, my dad's garage that I cut my teeth on really was a mostly classic vehicles and restoration side of things, probably largely because I really liked that kind of stuff. I didn't like many modern cars even back then. And, uh, and so I'd had massive experience going through that stage and I trained in the body trade as well. I used to be a concourse paint sprayer and um, it was one of my early career trades and um, yeah, doing like Rolls-Royce standard, okay. you know, 12 layers of coat, flat it back, you know, just 12 layers of paint, flat it back, just doing that again and again until you get this glass-like finish. Takes forever. Um, but that's one of the things that taught me that attention to detail that you learn and you go, if you don't do that, you know, as, as one of my customers said, you know, he said, I would paper behind the wardrobe because I know that it looks right behind the wardrobe rather than just paper up to the edge of it. Yeah. And it's kind of that, you know, there's so much hidden on these vehicles that I know it makes a difference to them that makes them drive the way they do. And it doesn't matter if the customer as long as they get the enjoyment out of it and they, and they do that. And that's, you know, but that's many, many years of experience. Yeah. And there is, uh, like, I know now a bit more about buying classics and seeing various states of cars that unless you, there's a huge amount of value in knowing one, the person that's done all the work, that's obviously makes huge, but you know when it was done and you know the car's life since it was done. If someone just says this car's been restored and maybe upgraded in X, Y, Z, the reality is you don't know until you blast it back to zero. You don't know. You don't know. Because no. people are very good with filler. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some horror <laughs> stories over the years. And that's why, so, so we do our LE vehicles, and then we also do our bespoke vehicles. So that's where bespoke is when somebody comes along and goes, I want something that's similar to one of your LEs, but I want this, this, and this in it. Yeah. So it's their bespoke thing. Or they say they want an LE 50 spec vehicle, but we built all of the LE 50s, and we said we're only going to do 50 of those, so we don't do any yeah. more of them. And so that becomes a bespoke vehicle. Um, and then, yeah, that's kind of the process that they go through. Because there's a there's a green car downstairs with a tan interior. Yeah, it's probably quite a popular combo these days. That seems to have a lot, has some a lot more modern sort of things in it. 
it's got a big display mm-hmm. and like touch sensitive buttons or something in it and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, is that an example of someone coming to you and going, I think that was, yeah, I'm this sort of side. And then, yeah. And you know, we, we've got customers that have a, a button in the ashtray that says do not push or ejector <laughs> seat and stuff like that. Um, but when you push the button, a heads up display unit appears from behind the dashboard. You can't even see anything there. It's just got an MG badge on yeah. the front of it. And then this head unit pops out from behind it and stuff like that. So those are yeah, just customer quirks, not quirks. They're just like I really little features. Yeah. I've always fancied doing this. And, and then occasionally we get um, people who have disabilities as well. Uh, so we've done several vehicles for customers who's uh, they've had an accident and have lost the use of their legs. Oh, so uh, you have hand controls and things like yeah. that. Yeah, so oh, hand cool. controls and uh, automatic transmission and stuff like that is very complicated to do. Um, you've got to have a full engine management or gearbox management system to manage them. But I was in a wheelchair just over two years ago uh, with back injuries. So oh, it's sure. one of those things. And I've, I've been suffering with back pain for uh, 10, 15 years. And um, so I always have a lot of empathy with people yeah. that have problems on that. And uh, so, okay, yeah, okay, we'll do it. That must have been, that must have been a bleak COVID. Was that around time, COVID time as well? How was that for you guys here? For us as a company? Well, obviously not just the personal injury, but COVID and that period. Um, the first week, everybody went, oh, crap, what's going to happen? And is this going to last for a week or a month or two months? Nobody thought it would ever go on for longer than that when it first happened. Um, but I very quickly realized that we could categorize ourselves as engineering. So I said, right, we're staying open. Yeah. Um, customers, the parts business went mental because everybody's just sat at home. Yeah. Just going, not spending any money. Not spending any money. I want to get on with my car. I've been wanting to do this. I'm being paid to be at home now. I can work on my car for the next six months. Yeah. Um, so that was, I, I probably worked harder <laughs> at the beginning of COVID than I've ever worked in my life. Um, and so that was really good. But then it was trying to persuade all the engineering firms to stay open as well, to, to keep supplying us with products, and mm. which is always, always very difficult. And there was so much fear at that time. And generally that it was a really draining emotional time. Yeah. But I knew that as a company, was, you know, we're a small company, you have to keep pressing forward. You have to keep doing things. Otherwise, you know, some companies like this won't survive. And lots of them sadly haven't survived. But I think we, we made the right choice by pushing through, we made sure our guys were looked after properly and we distanced where we could and all those kind of things. Um, one of the best parts of that COVID period though was driving into work because we've got some amazing roads between yeah. my house and here. And so it was just, there was, whether I was in the car or on the motorbike, it was just like, wow, this is just amazing. This is unbelievable. Yeah, so I just thought, yeah, so it made me smile every day. And even though it was, it was a, a grim time in many other yeah. ways, I, I was having fun on the roads. That's cool. <laughs> That's very cool. I got to go uh, scuba diving at one point mm. it, sort of during the pandemic when we were at some point we were allowed to go on holiday and um, you just saw loads of loads more stuff because no one had been going diving for like nine months and that's never happened in the last ever yeah that's it there were times that um, we my wife and I bought a motorhome right at the beginning of lockdown oh, okay. and uh, we drove up to Scotland to pick it up and uh, we were going to come down the east coast of England which we hadn't explored and all of a sudden went to lockdown I went oh no we can't do it but we worked out that the west coast of Scotland wasn't in lockdown oh right yeah so, we, so, we, so we drove across Scotland went over to Mull and then to Sky. and it was my wife's birthday at the time so it was December it was freezing cold um, but there was nobody there 
That so must we, have been really quite I think cool. That we had surreal. Yeah, it was it was surreal. You know, just like driving around, and going, "There's nobody here." <laughs> Trying to find some shops that were open to buy some provisions as well. Yeah. Um, and then there's a beach up on I think it's on Mull called Calgary Beach, which is a crescent moon beach, and it's the most beautiful white sand from coral and um, sh- shells and things. And uh, we stopped there for two days. Didn't see a person. Wow. The only thing we saw were otters, and they were just diving in bringing up shellfish and things and cracking them on the rocks. And you just stood there just watching them and just loving them. So that's probably, that's an experience that we had during COVID that will never ever happen again yeah. in my lifetime, I wouldn't think. So there were some amazing things. That is, that is so cool. Yeah. And I they, think we were very lucky. You, you can't plan that sort of stuff. And like, you can't do it again because we're not in that scenario. But like the idea of a motorhome basically stocked up with provisions because so you can at least go to a shop and get some stuff and then like, everything's shut down. Everyone's working from home if you're at home anyway. So just going for a wander. But once lockdown and COVID ended, or COVID still rained, but once it all, all kind of went back to normal, we then realised that we didn't actually enjoy using the motorhome when you're having to go to a campsite all the time yeah. rather than just being able to pull up anywhere because there was nobody there to tell you not to. Yeah. Um, so we sold it. Oh, that's interesting because I've always had this like niggle that I want some sort of like camper van or motorhome or something. And I've done a little bit of abroad on holidays. It's stuff. itch you need to scratch sometimes. And I, I do need to scratch it at some point, even if it's so that I can just like drive here. And then, although here it's not a good example, but get, come here, make myself a coffee, sit in the back, <laughs> do a bit of work and then go in and do the stuff. Um, sounds, sounds appealing. Yeah, there's, um, a, there's a dream in there somewhere. There's a dream in somewhere. It's got to be, it's got to be sampled. I'm sure by the time, as you say, you, you'll get it and then your vision will have changed in two years time. <laughs> you have to upgrade it, change it to a motorbike or something. Um, right. So I normally wrap these up with five questions. Okay. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? I think that's, um, probably that one. That, yeah. <laughs> no, in, in the MGs, it was going down through, um, France, Italy, and then um, down to Amalfi. Um, th- that particular trip was really good. So I went down the first stage to Val d'Isere with my son. And so we, we drove down there, picked up some skis in the evening. So I rocked up at seven o'clock at night with a roof down in Val d'Isere. Nice. And everybody's like, have you just driven here from the UK? <laughs> I went, yes. <laughs> We've got heated seats on, nice coats on. We were fine. You know, they're Perfect. all like, wrapped up to go skiing. Yeah. So we did that and a couple of days skiing. And then... Um, drove down to um, near nearby airport when my wife flew in. Son flew out. Nice. Picked up her car and went home. And then we went to Siena, then down to Rome, then to Amalfi, then back up to Portofino. Um, we'd actually stay in Portofino, stayed just off the side of it, uh, the Hotel Miramar, I think it was. And um, and then from there along the southern coast of, or sorry, the southern north coast of Italy, and then to Nice, and then back up to Paris and took the Eurostar back home again. So nice. we were away for 12 days and I think it was just under 3,000 miles, something like that. Now doing, I've, I've done 3,000 miles in, in a week, which is, is, is less than, than 12 days. Would, if you were to do a trip like that again, mm-hmm. would you take more time or? Um, yes or, or and actually no. It kind of, and I've got some big trips planned over the next few years. Um, but the way we do a driving trip is we... Um, we set a destination points we want to go to and we'll just drive. Yeah. And if that means driving for eight hours, we drive for eight hours and you get there. And that's the things you want to stop and see along the way. We just, it is, you know, we're just going. Yeah. And um, we hardly ever touch motorways and 
toll roads. We just literally try and stay off them all the time because they are soul-destroyingly boring. Yes. And you get there a little bit quicker, but you just feel like you've lost a day. Whereas mm. if you, you enjoy the day's drive, you might still be pressing on. Yeah, there's a lot in that. But you just, you've, you've enjoyed the journey and you, you might stop, go through somewhere and go, this is quite a cool place. And you just stop for a while. And that's really nice. And when I go off doing tours on my own, which I do on my motorbike sometimes, I will literally go, I want to head roughly in that direction. I want to drive, drive for about an hour and a half. Um, what's a coffee shop there? Yeah, fine. That's it. Yeah. That's my destination. So there's no more planning than that. And we, when we go abroad, we usually book the first night's accommodation somewhere. And after that, we book nothing. We just literally wing it and just decide where we want to go. Nice. Yeah. That's my that's kind of traveling. That sounds like a good way of doing mm. it. I, st- I, st- I tried to do, and I'm trying to do a bit of that on these, when I'm recording these podcasts. Yeah. Because it's all very well being like, you know, I'm going somewhere interesting. I'm doing something interesting there. But if, I, if someone's quite far away, you spend a huge part of your day on the motorway and it's just like, it's just a yeah, just dead find some way to stop along the way. And it's like, I'm starting to be like, okay, can we do a bit less motorway, a bit more stopping on the way? Then you find places that are shut on a Tuesday and you're like, <laughs> no toilets. <laughs> like, oh God. I've got a portable battery powered coffee machine, an espresso Ooh. machine. So that just stays in the car. I've been on the thinking of getting one of these. And uh, I don't know if say the brand or not, but you can say, yeah, it's yeah, a Putin. Yeah. Okay. And um, can you rate it? Yeah, really good. Okay, I think so I'll probably you, get you, can, you can get Nespresso pods go into it, or you can t- uh, grind your own coffee and, and and tamp it in. Um, Is it like that sort of size? It's like a, it's like a small flask, cylinder type, yeah, thing, and it just yeah. all clips together. It's really easy to use, and on one charge, it'll do five hot coffees. I'm getting one of these um, for the car, or um, it'll do something like a hundred cold ones. Okay, so if you want a cold presso, yeah, something like that, um, and it's just it's a game changer because it means as long as you've got water with you and some snacks. Yeah. You can sit down and have a coffee and just go, just stop anywhere. You get an amazing view and you're like, right, let's that, have a break. That was the thing about the, the motorhome slash situation yeah. that I loved that I didn't anticipate was driving past a beach or something, stopping, opening the door yeah. and then being like, all right, should we have a cup of tea, cup of coffee, whatever. And you, you can replicate that in a car with a, a little coffee machine, et cetera. But that was one of the things that I not anticipated that I enjoyed the most. Um, that's, yeah, okay, I'm going to get one of these. If you could only drive one car, a sports car, for the rest of your life, what would it be? It would be one of mine. And what would that be? Probably the one you went out in today. Okay. Um, I might make it a little bit less aggressive or maybe slightly yeah. taller gearing for doing longer journeys. Um, that is my car. And, yeah. You know, I, I don't own a modern vehicle. I've got a classic Land Rover. I've got that. My wife's got a modern vehicle. Um, but... That's it. You know, I've got several MGs and a classic Land Rover. So nice. That's it. Interesting. Are there any modern cars that, are you sort of like, not like anti-modern cars or are there certain no, modern cars I'm that are interesting? No, I'm interesting to um, I, I don't like it when cars take over, mm-hmm. when the computer says, no, you can't do that because I know how to drive and I want almost everything you get into. So I had a Yaris GR for a while. Yeah. And... After the first few days of going, wow, this is exhilarating and really good fun, I started to find fault with it because the computer's still controlling things and doing annoying things. So that had to go. Yeah. Um, and I won't name other brands, but there's several brands I won't even sit in because I just know they're just going to annoy me. Yeah, yeah. And they're mainstream, you know, yeah. mostly Germans. <laughs> the Porsche doesn't fit into that category because there are some, they're just, there's some really special Any cars. Any car made in 2024 comes with bongs when you go over the speed limit 
and like lane control. Two things that like should just die. They're not helpful. Uh, the Mercedes lane control, I think, is positively dangerous. Yeah. It just grabs the brakes and swerves the car across the road. And it's just, this is dangerous. It would be fine if, I don't know, we were in America and all the roads were straight and they all had big lines and whatever. But anyway, yeah. So um, I do like um, vehicles in the Land Rover range, modern ones, the new Defender mm-hmm. in particular. I think that drives beautifully. It's very capable. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, it's good. it doesn't argue with you. It just does what it's supposed to do. And yeah. so that's kind of <laughs> just that's, that's it. And I think yeah. that they have even gone to the point of they have to have these systems on the new stuff, but they've made it in the Defender. It's for Harry's Garage video, right? And they mentioned this. They've got buttons on the steering wheel that you can very quickly cycle, just press, 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 and disable the ones that you don't want, which is helpful. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? Ooh. Other than a frontline, obviously they're higher than sixty. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have no idea. That's not a question I've ever thought of. Um, honestly, don't know. Okay, I, 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 older stuff, newer stuff. Is there anything you go like, oh yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd buy one of those right now. It seems like good value, or just not. Don't know. There's a few things that I've hankered over mm. in the past, and one of them I've just bought. Okay. Which is a classic motorbike. Oh. Honda VFR 750. What, what? I don't know much about motorbikes. So in its day, it was, um, this one's a 1990 model. It was the super bike of its day. Right. Finest handling. It was the innovative suspension, incredible engine. Um, and the one I bought is in full race livery, which is what I had as a poster in my bedroom oh, as a nice. kid. And um, so that was just a phenomenal memory for me. And it turns out this bike was um, the third bike of a privateer team that went to the Isle of Man to compete in the Isle of Man TT. Okay, that's this cool. Is like, this is the spare bike that never got raced. And it's been sat in a museum most of its life. So I was just lucky, right place, right time, bought that. And you can ride this on the road? Yeah, yeah, it's fully road legal. Yeah. Did fine. it require a bit of recommissioning because it's not um, done anything? Or? It had, they recommissioned it for me. And then I'm now doing a few more things to it just to... And 90s, has it got like some electronics and stuff like that or not much? But it's got some carburetors. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's got, it's got a coil packs with ignition. <laughs> it's really old school in that respect. Um, analog instruments, everything. So it's just going back to the area that I kind of grew up with. And as I say, as a kid, just wanting one of these. And I was cycling through Scotland once um, along um, uh, one of the locks and uh, Loch Ness, actually. And um, the... One of these went past the other way. And I was like, wow, just the guy yeah. canting over on the corners. And it's like, yeah, one day, one that day. Cool. And I forgot about it until I saw one back end of last year. And then I thought, went online, found this one for sale. Yeah. I thought, right, let's get it. Nice. So that's cool. Yeah. Uh, most interesting car. Anything you're looking up, Googling, like the tech of? I can't answer anything about tech for modern vehicles because okay. I don't keep up with it at all. Um, interesting vehicle. Wasn't expecting these questions. You're throwing me with these ones today. Oh well, I think that's that's part. part I like of I like I like quirky things. I like things that shouldn't necessarily work. I've got my MGC race car, which you shouldn't normally use as a race car, but it works really well. I know someone who races MGBs, and they his blows up all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it depends on how, you, how you build the engine and how you drive it. Yeah. <laughs> if you take it to the limit all the time, it's going to blow up. Um, but if you build it right, it shouldn't do. It yeah. should be good. And so, 
Um, yeah, I like a couple of I've always had a hankering over the, the Renault 5 Turbo. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a Gordini um, when I was younger. That was just the first fun toy car yeah. I had. That was really good fun. Um, and another one that I had for a while, which I really enjoyed, is the only BMW I've ever enjoyed. It was a BMW 3 Liter CS. Okay. A beautiful car. With yeah. the, the coupe with the both windows go down on the side. Yeah. Um, really nice balanced car. And it was just a, it, it was just a joy to drive. Um, yeah, that went many years together. Nice, nice looking thing. In terms of, I know not to talk about modern technology stuff, but it, are there some technologies that you use in the build design process that have changed significantly and you now look, you're now like, oh, this is a exceptionally useful that didn't exist on 20 years ago? CAD technology is very useful, scanning. Um, so when you're designing something to fit into an engine bay, so because you, you have to design everything to, mount up to and bolt onto existing mounting points yeah. um, so you can get the scan data. So you're not using a tape measure and a graph and yeah. plotting things out anymore. So your time for that and your margin for error is just almost non-existent now. Assuming um, they were built to a reasonable tolerance, are, so how are they? Every classic vehicle, doesn't matter what make it is, they're all different. Yeah, You can take five Porsches, five MGs, five Jaguars, measure them up, the door lengths will be different. You know, they'll be bit feminist things like that so when i design something i always design it with a tolerance or an adjustability mm-hmm. to cope with that and so that's kind of just something you have to do when you when you design things for older vehicles because a modern vehicle just, everything just clicks into place yeah because they're, they're designed with cad back then we didn't have cad it was all on a draft machines board. that could make them yeah. yeah and you know bob would be making the tooling for that side and fred would be making the tooling for that side and there'd be something slightly different what on let's say the engine bay and mounting points what sort of tolerance do you have to leave um it's it's more forward aft adjustments yeah so um yeah i usually work on up to 10 mil okay which sounds a lot um but you've got a tiny variance on the bracket that the engine mounts to yeah. on the engine and the tiny variance on the body and this, that, and the yeah, other. Yeah, only a few things need to be out, That's 10 right. mil. Yeah. There's a thing in engineering called stack tolerance where um, if you're assembling a series of components and you assemble them all in the correct order, you'll always get the same result. Yeah. But if you assemble them in a different order, you often get a different result. Yeah, if you're one mil out on every exactly. step. And it, then that you could be 20 mil out by the time you get to the end of it. And so that's something that we just look out for. Yeah, interesting. Uh, five car garage, unlimited value. Yeah. Um, motorbike. <laughs> okay. Um, XK120 Jaguar. Oh, nice. Um, obviously the MGB, the MGC, the MGA. So that effectively is my five. Yeah. Um, and then the classic Land Rover. Oh, the Bish Bash Bosch. Yep. And you wouldn't tweak that at all? No, because the... The three MGs are very different in characteristic, so they're very different driving styles. This is this is the sort of you're in that level of nerdiness where I could say about fifty nine elevens. Wow, they're all different. <laughs> like, yeah, they're all they so different. And that's the thing I think because I've I've never really been in the nine eleven world that much. Um, I I don't say something because I know somebody will go, "You're wrong on that," because I don't know. And I you know, I, I know, I know yeah. my subject matter. I don't know that one. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yep. Nice. Uh, one more to add to it. 1954 classic Ferguson tractor. Oh. First vehicle I ever drove. Right. Um, on my dad's forecourt. And my wife bought me one for my 50th birthday. Nice. And do you take that to the shops? Uh, we go to the pub. 
Okay, cool. That <laughs> yeah, is lug stuff fun. around the garden with it. Pick up neighbours that have um, lost their ability to walk. So is that, what colour is that, red? Grey. Grey. The old Grey Massey Ferguson. That's cool. Yeah. Right, well, thanks very much for You're coming welcome. on the podcast. Thank you for coming down and um, seeing what we do. Yeah, cheers. It was, it was good to go for a drive and, and meet you guys and I'm, I'm sure I'll come back in at another point. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.